Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 195, King of the Ashes. Last time, we saw the fallout from the Battle of Manzikert. With a gaping hole in the Empire's defences, tribes of Turkic nomads began to raid unchecked across the Anatolian Plateau. The government's attempts to halt their advance were hampered by the rebellion of the captain of their Norman mercenaries, Roussel de Bayeul. The insecure regime in Constantinople was so afraid of empowering a Roman general that they paid Norman to fight Turk and Turk to fight Norman until Anatolia was defenceless and the treasury was nearly empty. Today, we will follow the flailing administration of Michael VII as it slowly collapses under the immense weight of events and watch as the remaining Roman generals line up one after another as each attempts to burn the empire down in order to become king of the ashes. In our previous episode, we covered events between 1072 and 76, from the death of Romanos Theogenes to the arrest of Roussel, and our focus was solely on Anatolia. Let's briefly cover that same period, but from the perspective of the capital and the western provinces. The man in charge was, technically, Michael VII, Constantine Ducas's eldest son, who was now in his mid-twenties. And, as you've heard repeatedly, our sources dismiss him as a non-entity. Quiet, diffident, and easily dominated, Michael is praised for being a good person and condemned for being a bad emperor. It's hard to tell how much responsibility Michael himself should bear. His father certainly could have prepared him better, Nevertheless, he was at the wheel as the Roman ship ran aground, and therefore cannot escape blame. During this period, though, our historians do shield him from specific criticism. They heap the blame instead on his chief minister, a eunuch named Nicephorizes. It would seem that Michael, once again, found someone to lean on, and by virtue of his mutilated state, Nicephorizes receives a horrible press for the disasters that follow, including that nickname, a diminutive form of his given name, Nicephorus. 
I feel kind of bad, but I'm going to continue calling him that throughout the episode for reasons that will become obvious as we go forward. Nicephoritzi's chief concern during this period was to raise revenue for the exchequer. With most of Anatolia lost to the taxman, the empire desperately needed cash. The easiest recourse was to again debase the nomisma. The gold content plunged over the next few issues from Romanus's 70% down to about 50 and that figure will keep falling. Next, Nicephoritzi's turned to individual cases. Debts were called in, lands were confiscated, legal cases concluded with heavy fines owed to the state. Expenses were also slashed. The government were paying annual subsidies to both the Pechenegs, who lived north of the Hemus Mountains, and to the notables of the Danubian trading towns beyond, who had to arm themselves against potential attacks from north and south. Though these were understandable outgoings to cut back on, given the desperate situation, there would be consequences. Most infamous amongst Nicephoritzi's financial measures was his attempt to centralise the grain trade. Though the government worked hard to keep prices down at the capital, the business of providing people's daily bread was essentially a private matter. Farmers in Thrace and elsewhere would sell their grain directly to merchants working in and around Constantinople, who would then sell it on to the public or to the various institutions who bought in bulk. A lot of this trade escaped the commercial taxes, which, say, a ship arriving on the Golden Horn would be forced to pay. There was an opportunity here to better regulate the trade and bring in easy and legal revenue for the government. Nicephoritzis revoked the charters of individuals and monasteries who'd been given the rights to control various docking points around the capital, and he built a new warehouse, a foundax, as it was known, at Rydestos. Rydestos was a port town about 80 miles from Constantinople, which served as the primary grain market for Thracian farmers. At present, buyers could walk around the docks negotiating until they got the price they were looking for. But from now on, everyone would be forced to buy and sell only at the foundax. That way, every transaction would be taxable. Although this system made a lot of sense, particularly in the light of Anatolia's travails, it was deeply resented, and the results were predictable. Producers began to withhold grain in order to get higher prices to compensate for the loss of income they'd suffer through being taxed. Those buying therefore raised the price of bread on the streets of Constantinople, which prompted all sorts of problems, including workers asking for more money and many starving. This was a period when refugees were pouring into the capital, not only from Anatolia, but also from Italy, which had fallen to the Normans at the same time as Manzikert. Needless to say, Nicephoritzis was blamed for all of this, and would soon pay the ultimate price for getting on the wrong side of the capital's population. But before everything comes crashing down, let's just turn to international relations for a moment. The Turks were not the only enemy menacing Byzantium. It was well understood 
that the fall of Bari was not the end of Robert Giscard's ambitions. The ruthless Norman leader had begun gathering ships for an attack on the empire's Adriatic coast. Michael wrote to the Pope to ask for help with this, which we'll come to in a moment. But in the end, the Byzantines made an independent peace with Giscard. The deal would eventually see Robert's daughter become empress. She was engaged to Michael's newly born son. And the Norman would be paid an extraordinary amount of money for staying in Bari. He was put on the payroll and allowed to distribute another 44 Byzantine court titles with their associated salaries to his followers. That's 14,400 gold coins every year. Antony Caldellis calls this protection money on an imperial scale. From our point of view, the Byzantines were essentially paying Robert as if he was their governor in Italy. They had done this many times before the Norman takeover. A Lombard or Latin rebel would cause trouble, but eventually be put on the payroll and established as the legitimate governor. At least in those cases, though, new Byzantine troops and officials would arrive to provide a counterbalance and report back on the new man's behaviour. Now, Constantinople was funding a sworn enemy with no way to hold him accountable for his actions. It was a desperate act from a government who felt that if Giscard invaded the Balkans at that moment, the empire might fall. Before that deal was done, though, Michael exchanged letters with Pope Gregory VII. Though Giscard was technically his vassal, Gregory had also found Count Robert impossible to control. Gregory was an enthusiastic advocate of the reform movement, which we discussed during the Great Schism episode. Keen for the papacy to have more power over Christian princes, Gregory pursued the idea of creating a papal army. He began dashing off letters trying to recruit knights from across Western Europe with the idea of bringing the Normans under his control and then clearing Anatolia of the Turks. In exchange, he hoped the Byzantines would accept the primacy of St. Peter. Though it came to nothing, the origins of the Crusades can be found here. The Romans also concluded two other peace treaties in the hopes of stemming their loss of blood. One was with Alp Arslan's successor, Malik Shah, and though this seems to have been a success, the Sultan must have told the ambassadors that he had no control over the bands now settling down on the Anatolian plateau. The other deal was made with King Geza of Hungary, he would marry the daughter of a Byzantine nobleman, and she arrived with a crown specially made for the occasion. This piece was later combined with another to form the Royal Crown of Hungary, which you can see on the website or social media. Finally, Nicephorizes did attempt to recruit native Romans into the army. The sons of many notables who'd fled for the capital were rounded up into a new Tachmata. They were then trained to fight as heavy cavalry lancers, uh, imitating the Norman style of war. It was the right thing to do to try and restore native arms, but it would be a long while before these young men were going to be effective on the battlefield. 
That brings us back to 1076 and the arrest of Roussel. As you can see, the government was not passive during this period, but its options were limited. And the drastic measures needed to keep the state afloat naturally caused pain for those in the West who were now paying for the misfortunes of the East. That same summer, the trading towns of the Danube, cut off from the financial support of the capital, threw in their lot with the Pechenegs. A combined force marched south, demanding Nicephorizis be removed from his post and their subsidies restored. The emperor refused, and the armies of Thrace stayed behind their walls as the Pechenegs ran wild. Once the coast was clear, Delegations of soldiers headed to the capital from Adrianople to complain about their inadequate pay. When the Vasilefs failed to assuage them, rebellions began to stir. By the way, the Danube region now fell out of imperial control for the next two decades. In the end, these displays of imperial impotence prompted simultaneous insurrections in east and west, though neither would declare their intent until autumn 1077. In the Balkans, the survivor of Manzikert, Nicephorus Vurienios, raised the standard of revolt at Dyrrhachium, while over the waters in the Anatolikon, the dukes Nicephorus Votaniates also declared himself emperor. Vurienios was an able commander, and given he could recruit from the Balkan armies and reach the Theodosian land walls, he was considered the greater threat. Vurienios won over many of his colleagues and was given a hero's welcome in his home city of Adrianople. Meanwhile, the merchants of Rydestos threw in their lot with the rebels, tearing down the hated Foundax. Vurienios's brother took an advance force to Constantinople to see if the people would overthrow Michael on the spot. But no one acted, and when troops set fire to buildings in the suburbs, public opinion turned decidedly against the usurper. Vurienios decided to spend the winter at Adrianople and wait for better luck in the spring. But to underline the damage which civil war always does, the Pechenegs took advantage of the confusion and raided south. Vurienios was forced to pay them to go away. Meanwhile, Votaniates, the lesser threat, ended up doing more damage indirectly. It's easy to see why the Dukes was underrated. He was in his mid-70s and did not have a distinguished record as a general. We saw him last episode abandoning the Caesar John Ducas to defeat by the Turks. By this point, he only commanded a few hundred men, so it seemed doubtful he would gather enough support to make a bid for the throne. But Votaniates followed the government's own cue and began negotiating with the local Turks. This is where we observe, from hindsight, the Byzantines shooting themselves in both feet. Votaniates had admirably remained at his post and defended the small pocket of territory around his HQ, but now, in order to make a bid for the throne, he not only abandoned the Anatoly Khan, but handed over towns to the nomads. 
So far, the Turkic tribesmen loose in the empire had shown little inclination towards state creation. We saw last episode that they simply ransomed high-ranking hostages back to the authorities. They didn't attempt to use these chips to gain legal control over territory, as, say, Roussel had done. Now, however, high-ranking Seljuk noblemen had made their way to Anatolia and saw an opportunity. These were the sons of Kutlamush, Alp Arslan's cousin, who had been defeated in a civil war with the Sultan. The eldest brother, Suleiman, agreed to bend the knee to Votanyates and lend him military support. But in exchange, he would gain a permanent foothold in Roman territory. We don't know the exact nature of the deal which the two sides struck, but given the remaining defenders of central Anatolia were leaving, it hardly matters. The Turks were being given a free hand to dominate the area, and it wouldn't be long before they took walled cities, either by siege or negotiation. Some reports suggest Votanyates handed over the key city of Nicaea directly, though others think that that's doubtful. Either way, within a decade, the area will belong to the sons of Kutlamush. With Turkish aid, then, Votanyates was acclaimed emperor at Nicaea and spent the winter there. This was the darkest hour for Michael's government. Two usurpers were poised on either side of the capital, cutting the government off from the provinces. Inside, the swollen population began to starve. There was some food going around, but not enough, and many died during the cold months between late 1077 and early 1078, while others turned to a life of crime to survive. Nicephorizes also began to take from others. He tapped the last source of wealth he could, the church. He confiscated gifts to the clergy, and either melted them down or sold them off. Amongst the bureaucracy, it was clear that the sitting regime was doomed, and men began to whisper about which rebel would make a better replacement. Apparently, Votanyates was preferred, possibly because he was older and potentially more pliable. Yet again, the civil service favoured a man of inaction, rather than one of action. Just before Easter 1078, riots broke out in Constantinople, and those in the know led chants for Votanyates. The prisons were opened and an angry crowd waited outside the Hagia Sophia. The elderly general was waiting at Chrysopolis, and Michael began to make plans to abdicate. It was 1042 all over again, with Michael fleeing for the studious monastery, while the mob broke down the palace doors and ransacked it. Michael VII was around 30 years old, and had ruled alone for the past seven years, like so many figures from the 11th century, he was a pleasant man, unsuited to the office of emperor, and absolutely the wrong person for this moment. Unlike 1042, Michael was not dragged from his monastic exile to be blinded. Instead, the crowd's rage was focused on Nicephorizes. The unfortunate eunuch was captured and tortured, his accusers sure he'd squirreled away a fortune that they wanted to find. 
Interestingly, Michael was such a lacklustre figure that he was able to live out the rest of his days in peace, dying at some point in the 1090s. He took well to the monastic life and was eventually appointed Bishop of Ephesus, though by that point the city was in Turkish hands and he was only briefly able to visit his see. Votanyates entered the city in triumph and was crowned as Nicephorus III. Despite finding the treasury empty, he began handing out gifts and titles to everyone he could and forgiving debts. Antony Caldellis points out that Votanyates had been born during Basil II's reign, and here he simply acted out the same policies that he'd witnessed his entire life, the same policies which had brought the state to ruin. In order to fund his administration, he further debased the coinage, whose content dropped to below one-third gold. The change of emperor from Ducas to Votanyates was the most pointless of imperial transitions. The new Vasilevs kept on most of Michael's staff, he befriended his family, scandalously he even married Ducas's wife. Not only did this break canon law for both parties, but it was unseemly. She was a renowned beauty, and he was old enough to be her great-grandfather. The Roman state gained no benefit from any of this. Votanyates' first order of business was to fight the same civil war that Michael had been engaged in. Varianios had gathered his army again and was marching from Adrianople. To oppose him, Votanyates turned to Michael's most loyal commander, Alexios Komnenos. Varianios commanded the cream of the western armies, which comfortably outnumbered anything the capital could field. So, Turkic steppe riders were sailed across the Bosphorus to form the backbone of the imperial force. Bizarrely, the Norman rebel Roussel was released from his chains to offer his expertise to Komnenos as the army attempted to cut Varianios off before he reached the capital. The two sides met on the road and fought a pitched battle. Yet again, the steppe archers were too hot to handle. Komnenos carried the day, and Varianios was captured and blinded. In a unique situation, our reports of the battle come from the offspring of the two commanders, and a married couple at that, Alexios's daughter Anna and Varianios's grandson of the same name. So I won't recount the stories of this encounter, since they both make these generals out to be just wonderful people. And Ataliates tells a completely different version of events. But by all accounts, this was a bloody encounter. As you know, the Balkan armies had not been present in Anatolia since Manzikert, and had therefore survived somewhat intact. But here, it was the Romans themselves who brought the Turks into Europe to start killing their own Western troops. Imperial legitimacy was at an all-time low. Votanyates played the mercy card, forgiving Virienios' supporters for their treason, but soon after rows broke out between partisans of each side, which culminated in a unit of the Varangian Guard trying to assassinate the emperor. A brawl in the corridors of power was eventually settled in the favour of Votanyates, but the old man had been forced to take up arms to defend his own life.
nor were the civil wars over. In both East and West, fresh rebellions would break out. The key relationship for the state was now that between Votaniates and Alexius. Komnenos was the only general loyal to the crown who'd won any victories, and though the Vasilevs showered him with praise, he refused him entry into the city for obvious reasons. Instead, he ordered him to put down another Balkan rebellion. This was another Nicephorus, Vasilakis, who'd taken over Dyrrhachium when Varianios left. Hiring more Normans to assist him, Vasilakis set up his headquarters at Thessaloniki. Again, details of the battle come from Alexius's daughter, who says that her father outwitted the rebel, successfully counter-ambushing him in the forests near the city. The Western armies had been badly mauled, but for now, the Balkans were at peace. Votaniates felt that his legitimacy depended on launching another counter-attack into Anatolia. He had many supporters there waiting for his aid, so in spring 1079 he gathered a small force and sailed it across the Bosphorus. Ataliates tells us that many of the troops, relatively fresh to combat, were vocal about their apprehension at facing the horse archers in battle. No surprise then that as soon as they landed in Asia, they rebelled. Or at least some of them did. Present in the Asian suburbs was Constantine Ducas, Michael's younger brother, and he persuaded a portion of the expeditionary force to hail him as emperor. But many in the army wanted nothing to do with it, and after protracted negotiations, the would-be usurper was tonsured and packed off into exile. This army, though, could no longer be trusted and returned to the European shore. The Roman state could no longer even get an army to fight for them. The following year, yet another rebel proclaimed himself Vasilefs. This was Nicephorus, again, Melissinos, an officer from Anatolia who followed Vataniates' example and made an alliance with the local Turks. Details are again sketchy, but it's alleged that he installed Turkic garrisons in key cities along the west coast. During the Manzikert episode, I talked about Roman arrogance when it came to the nomads. It seems like these generals never contemplated the thought that the Turks might form a rival state that could threaten them. They were so sure that nomads were beneath them that they could leave cities in their care, sure that they would be able to retrieve them later. The emperor ordered Alexios to cross over and put down the uprising, but Komnenos refused. He didn't have the men to do it. He knew fighting the Turks was suicide. And Melissinos was his brother-in-law. Probably, Alexios could see the likely results of this scenario. If he failed in his mission, he would be accused of conspiring with his relative and stripped of his position. Votaniates turned instead to one of his eunuchs, but again his troops landed in Asia and refused to fight the Turks, or at least were unable to find a safe position from which to even contemplate a campaign. Votaniates' regime was at a dead end. He could achieve nothing with the present situation, and the present was all he had. The emperor was approaching his 80th birthday, and he had no son. 
the obvious move was to nominate Komnenos as his successor. This would keep his only general happy and continue to protect the interests of the wider Ducas Komnenos clan. Instead, the Vasilevs made it known that he favoured Nicephorus, seriously, Nicephorus Sinadinos, a relative of his. Not only did this alienate Alexius, but also the Empress. Remember, Votanyates had married Michael VII's bride, Maria. Her infant son, by Michael, was still designated as heir to the throne, and, by the way, was meant to grow up and marry the daughter of Robert Giscard. You won't be surprised to hear, then, that Alexius now turned rebel and besieged Constantinople. As strange as it sounds, I'm going to end our narrative right there, in 1080, on the cusp of another civil war. I'm going to save the story of how Alexius became emperor for the start of our next narrative century. That century will very much be defined by him and his family, and so we will begin with the dramatic tale of how he managed to succeed where so many other usurpers failed. Whichever way you slice it, there's no great way to end this particular century. Though Komnenos will finally provide the stability which the empire needs, the Romans are not done falling yet. Robert Giscard will use this regime change as an excuse to invade the Balkans, and Alexius will lose what little is left of the Byzantine army in trying to stop him. Only with the destruction of the native army can a new conception of Byzantine defence begin to form, eventually leading to the recruitment of whole armies from the west for an armed pilgrimage to take back Anatolia and Jerusalem itself. It's been a rather extraordinary 55-year period, not really a century at all. It's hard to imagine what Basil II would have made of how quickly his achievements unraveled. But the calcification of the political system combined with three new deadly enemies attacking all at once was more than Byzantium could really handle. We've seen many states collapse swiftly during the course of our podcast. Under intense military pressure, any state can be made to look retrospectively flimsy. Many a history book concludes that the Byzantine state was decaying long before Manzikert, but hopefully we've shown that not to be the case. The Romans were in a perfectly healthy state until the Pecheneg Wars, and even then they had the strength to adjust and protect their borders. But with the appearance of Turkic raids in the east, the strategic situation reverted to what it had been 200 years earlier, and the Romans were too slow to adapt. It's easy for us to say that, though, with our global hindsight, we have a lot of advantages, which they did not. The Byzantines had been expansionists for the past couple of centuries. It was too hard and too humbling to fall back on the old ways. Nor did the Romans anticipate nomads settling on the Anatolian plateau, that had not happened in the thousand years of their experience in Asia, so we ought to cut them some slack. We are in one of those perspective situations. Is the glass half full 
or half empty? Are we in the midst of a depressing story of decline? Or is it amazing that even after this legion of setbacks, the Romans came out fighting yet again? Alexius will revive imperial fortunes even from this low ebb. Where other states crumbled into the dust, the Byzantines will rise again. And I'm sure you will want to hear how Komnenos manages to push that boulder back up the hill. For those of you who like the narrative best, there is good news. We won't need a lengthy end-of-the-century series, in part because it's only been 55 years since we last looked around, and in part because those tours are designed to put Byzantium in its wider geopolitical context. Well, next century, that context is coming to our doorstep. The Turks have reached Nicaea, and soon they will be met outside its walls by the armies of Western Europe. So we'll have plenty of time to learn more about each, as the narrative advances. The bad news is that we will be pausing for many months. I owe Kickstarter backers their rewards, I owe subscribers their Byzantine stories, and I owe my fiancé my time and attention. I'm getting married soon, and there's a lot to do. So please forgive my absence, but when I'm back, we will be going full speed ahead into the Crusades. While I'm gone, do feel free to send in any questions about this 55-year period, and I will answer them on the show. There will also be a few more Backer Rewards episodes on the free feed, and if you'd like to get access to the Kickstarter videos of Istanbul and the other rewards available, then drop me a line at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com. One correction from our Manzikert episode. Alp Arslan is, of course, a Turkish epithet not a Persian one. After this episode, though, let's just be glad that he wasn't called Nicephorus. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.